Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 14, is where we find ourselves this morning. We're going to begin in verse 47 and walk a little bit through chapter 15. And I just have to warn you, um, about six months ago when I was sort of mapping out how I wanted to walk through 1 Samuel, whenever I had figured out that this was sort of one of the divisions in the text and I had read through the text in my notes that... uh, have my calendaring for preaching, um, I just put a big uh uh-oh next to this text. And the reason why I did was because I knew that I was going to need some extra time to prepare because you have in this text two very difficult issues that we have to wrestle with and must wrestle with within the Old Testament, namely the issue of genocide and the issue of God regretting or repenting of something and acknowledging that he made a mistake in the text. There are reasons uh, to, and ways to understand that. We must be careful, and I want to challenge you as always, especially on this day, to listen carefully as we begin to open up God's Word this morning. Years ago, Gallup began a series of surveys on the religiosity of the American citizen. They sought out to figure out how many of them used to attend religious services, And they can track this all the way back to about 1937, 1938. And from 1938 all the way until the year 2000, that percentage of Americans that attended either a church service or a synagogue or worship in a mosque was about 70%, fairly consistent throughout the decades. And then all of a sudden in 2000, that demographic, that stat began to change drastically. And from 2000 up until 2021, we have seen a steady decline of Americans attending religious services, so much so that it is down to around 47%. Far fewer of us are attending church, and far fewer of us are attending church on a regular basis and lay claim to the fact that we identify with a local church ministry. Now, I realize that Gallup's study was done across the spectrum of religion, but those statistics translate even over to the evangelical church. They give a variety of reasons why this is so. One of those predominantly just simply being we have an aging population of of boomers and traditionalists, as they would be referred to in this study. And as the population gets older and and the younger group comes up, namely millennials and the Gen Y, we, we are becoming less and less of traditional people. But in this uh, survey with Gallup, they interviewed a couple of these individuals and published some of the responses. And we're asking them how come they didn't attend church and what were some of the reasons why they didn't gather. And one of the responses was quite peculiar and interesting. This lady in Southern California was interviewed and she was asked this question, how come she didn't attend? And and her answer was something like this, is I don't see how the church has much relevance on my life, especially when, note this, my friends who don't go to church, we act the same as we perceive those that do go to church. 
And in her mind, there was no difference. There was no distinguishing factor of character and morality in those that go to church and those that didn't, at least within the context in which she lived. And so therefore, she was not going to attend for there was no persuasive reason for her to do so. Now, I would challenge us this morning to be persuasive in how we live and obey outside of this building, that it matters what we do here in this room during this time, but it also matters what we do when we leave here and when we go into our cities and our neighborhoods and, and into our homes. And not confusing meaningless religion and meaningless obedience and meaningless sacrifice that is devoid of a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. You see, I know that serving in student ministry and serving with college kids and family is one of the things that I would watch and see over 10 years in doing that student ministry is I would see students that grew up in the church that later walked away from the church. And anecdotally, my experience with that has been one of the reasons why many of the students I saw walk away and leave the church is because I could look at the home life of mom and dad and I could indicate predictably, fairly quickly, whether or not a student was going to walk with Jesus when they left the home based upon what they had seen or not seen in mom or in dad in the house. You see, for many of us, we confuse coming to church as a sacrifice, and, and we miss the larger picture of walking with God and, and letting our children and our neighbors and our friends and our families see that we are people that are walking with God. In the text today, King Saul was a man who knew God and who practiced religion but did not obey it in the way that he proclaimed it. There was something missing in Saul's life. A relationship, namely, with the Lord God, that he would listen to him and obey him when God spoke and he would believe him and he would walk with him and, and he would pursue him and he would seek to, to be an agent of justice, if you will, in the culture and in the society in which he lived. But I want to pick up, beginning in verse 47 of Samuel 14, where it begins and it says this, when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. For wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly, and he struck the Amalekites, and he delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Verse 52 goes on and he says, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached himself to them quickly. Towards the end of Saul's reign and the transition that we will begin to see within the book of 1 Samuel, where we begin to look at a man after God's own heart, but we have to conclude today with looking at a leader whom we learn what not to do who maybe has 90% of it right, but, but misses the other 10%, who doesn't quite understand what it is that God is wanting. And, and Saul's reign was a reign that was ruled by many ups and downs. It was a, a reign that was uh, personified and, and lived out where he almost obeyed rightly every time, but many times we find that Saul just didn't quite get it. But he did the very thing that God brought him to do, and that was namely to fight off the enemies that had surrounded Israel. Constantly, 
Saul was in war with the people around him. Constantly, Saul was going to battle. Constantly, Saul was fighting and looking for valiant and strong men and and warriors to do the same. And then chapter 15, verse 1 comes in, and Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. And friends, listen carefully. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike this king and his people and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Here you have one of several instances throughout the Old Testament where God demands the execution, he demands the death of women and children, of even animals and livestock that could be used for, for good things and could be used for noble things. And anytime we encounter folks that do not believe in the Bible and do not believe in Christianity, that are objectors to the faith, this is one of the places that they run. How could we therefore then call our God a loving and kind God when he issues and he declares that all women and children and animals and livestock be put to death? It's one of the more difficult questions that we have to wrestle with. It's one of the difficult questions, quite frankly, even if we grew up in the church, that even as a young person and as a teenager, we ought to begin to wrestle with these deeper theological issues of justice that exist within the context of the Bible, for we should not skip over them or gloss over them. For God said it, and so we must give a response to it. Many notable agnostics and atheists have made this claim. How can I serve the God that you sing about when he orders the execution of so many seemingly innocent people? One of the responses that we give to that is that we understand biblically is that no one is really truly ever innocent. There has not been one person born into existence that has ever existed that was ever truly innocent and and guilt-free of sin. And all of us, according to Scripture, are deserving of death and punishment because of sin and because we walk in sin. And we see that selfishness and that gratification even exists within newborn babies. And if you just take away a, a pacifier or a bottle for just a moment and you would see them wanting and learning and, and yearning and crying and, and throwing fits, wanting what is theirs and what they need for comfort. And we see that even from early on and in the very beginning. And so no one is truly innocent. But in the case of the Amalekites, God ordering their destruction, one of the things the text does for us is it gives us a little bit of context on why this one in particular was deeply justified in this instance. You see, he reminds them at the end of verse 2 that it was Amalek, the king of the Amalekites, who did to Israel in opposing them as they were in the desert, wandering around near Sinai. And this wasn't just a a casual conflict, if you will, but this was a, a group of people, the Amalekites, who were directly opposing not just the people of God, but rather God himself. We're challenging him at every turn and putting to death innocent women and children of Israelite descendants. And they were putting them to death on a regular basis, going to battle against them, um, uh, 
taking things that weren't theirs. And, and so he reminds them of the fact that it was this group of people as they passed through Egypt that attacked them. This was the people that they warred with when Aaron and Hur held up the hands of Moses and later the Israelites in Exodus 17, they, they triumph. It really is the fulfillment of a promise found in Deuteronomy 25 where the Lord commanding his vengeance, he says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out and therefore you shall blot out the memory of him from under heaven that one day he will be punished for what he did. And so the Lord orders the destruction of these people. The purpose of this judgment, the purpose of this offensive rather, was divine judgment on these people for not just being nitpicky towards the Israelites, but directly opposing and standing in the way of God. A difficult thing to grasp and a difficult thing to reconcile. But this nation was to be offered, these Amalekites were to be offered to the Lord in a, in a display of perfect divine justice. Having opposed them and continued in wickedness, now they get to see displayed the full measure of the wrath of God. No other way to put it. Amen. So in verse 4, the text goes on and he says, So Saul summoned the people. And he numbers them, about 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul comes to the city and he lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said in verse 6 to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Malachites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So they departed and went away from the Amalekites. Verse 7, and Saul defeated them. As far as from Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. And so he follows the commands of the Lord. But, in verse 9, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Seemingly a justifiable act, is it not? If you or I were in Saul's spot, perhaps we would have done something similar. And we could have justified it with much good. But yet in this particular instance, in this context, God asked something of Saul that is different than what Saul actually did. And so the issue here is not so much what good can be done by this, but rather the question is, but what did God say to Saul and order him to do? And so then verse 10 comes in and it says, after this, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. And he says, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord, all night. The scholars debate the use of that word there in the ESV that says regret. There are over 29 other instances in the Old Testament where either the word regret or repent is used of God doing something, God regretting an action that he did. And there are some 
uh, uh, scholars, liberal scholars in particular, that will use this statement to make a claim upon the character of God and to say, well, the reason why God would regret something and the reason why God would repent of something is because clearly, as it states in the text, God made a mistake. And they wrestle with the idea, well, how does a God, all perfect and sovereign, believing in foreknowledge and understanding the rest of Scripture, how does God, almighty, sovereign, and all-powerful, how does he make mistakes? How does he come to a place where he regrets an action as if he made a terrible mistake, like you and I would regret something that we would do, and, and we repent of that? Did God actually repent? Did God actually regret? This idea is just simply called, within the academic world, some of you are familiar with it, open theism. And open theism says this, to understand verse 11, I regret that I have made him king. I repent that I have made him king. I was wrong that I have made Saul king. Open theism says that God does not know future events until they actually happen. Because these events don't actually happen until a human's choice comes involved in it. And then God is constantly in a place where he's responding to the actions of humanity because God does not know the future. You and I would say quite simply, doesn't this undermine the sovereignty of God? Doesn't this undermine the foreknowledge that God would have? Overall, this idea and wrestling with this text that I regret and repent that I've made Saul or made something, it undermines the Bible's overall portrait of God emphasizing his sovereignty and that he is all-powerful, and that he is in control. For if he doesn't know the future or see the future, it only responds as things happen, then he is no less and not the God of the Bible. But we know Jesus speaks contrary to this claim. Jesus makes a statement in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, where he says, There are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. In other words, what Jesus is doing is reminding us in this point that there is not one thing that happens within this world that God does not know. And the insignificance of two cheap little sparrows and one would fall to the ground and the Lord our God would know it every single time. And he would address it and he would speak to it. Theologian Dr. Bruce Ware at Southern Seminary, wrote a book on open theism that I thumbed through this past week and got through almost all of it. And Bruce Ware, he gives, I think, are, are helpful some suggestions in dealing with this idea of, and combating this idea that there was a, a thing in which God repented of or regretted or did not know. And, and what Dr. Ware does for us, he says a couple of things that I think are instructive for the church this morning. Number one is this. God is aware of and involved in changes to the human situation, and he responds in appropriate ways. 
Meaning God is transcendent and he is above us and, and he is a holy God, but he is also imminent. He's with us and he's near us. He's the promise of Emmanuel. God is with his people. And he interacts with us and he, and he hears us and he, and he does respond, but not in a way in which we have the ability to manipulate him into a posture or manipulate him into a position. But it's a reminder that God is aware and he is involved in the day-to-day -day things of our lives and our situations and the things in our culture. Number two, this doesn't indicate God being flustered over some lack of foresight, but rather grieved over a lack of obedience. You see, when God says, I regret that I have made Saul, it wasn't him saying, I've made a mistake in making him king. But rather, it grieves me and what I wanted for him and intended for him, what was best for him, and to see him not walk in a posture of obedience, but rather doing what is right in his own eyes. And seeking to lead how he wanted to lead and not following my command to the letter of the law. It doesn't indicate he is flustered over it, but rather grieved because of the lack of obedience. Dr. Ware also says that sometimes we see in the language of the English that renders out of the Hebrew in these moments, God is desiring to use thought-provoking language to gather our attention for just a moment. And in so doing, what he's doing when he says, I regret that I have made Saul king, he is reminding us that he demands, pay close attention to this, careful obedience to his commands from those that would serve on his behalf. And when he gives you a place and a position to lead and he gives you a, a calling to follow him as a believer in Christ, that he wants you to pay close attention, to pay careful attention to the things that he would ask of you. Not so that he could beat you up over the head or so that you can feel condemned or shamed when you don't live up to what it is that he's asked, but, but it's understanding that when God asks me to do something, it's for my best and that the safest place that I can be is in the center of God's will, following his commands because this is where the refuge is. It is in the shadow of his wings, not outside of it. And you can't be in the shadow of his wings when you're walking in disobedience outside of it. And so he's just simply saying, I'm grieved over his lack of obedience because I had asked him to do particular things and in this moment he, he fails to live up to the standard. But then we keep reading in the text in verse 12. It says, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel, verse 13, came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen so that we could sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop Saul. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, 
You are not the head of the tribes of Israel. You do not perform the function of the priest. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and devote to destruction the sinners and the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed. Why did then you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen and the best of things, and devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. You see, in this moment, Saul almost gets it. But he doesn't quite get it all the way. He followed the Lord and, and did most of what the Lord had, had asked him to. And, and he got really close. And, and in many circles today, he would have been applauded and, and patted on the back and, and made a deacon and an elder at a church and, and taught a Sunday school class because he almost obeyed and he almost did it, but he didn't follow the letter of the law. He didn't follow the, the letter and the spirit of what God had told him to do and destroy all things. And so in verse 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord has, has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Listen to this, church. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Amen. If we were to summarize these verses in just one sentence, we would simply summarize it and go home after this and just simply say that the Lord places greater priority on obedience than he does on formal religion. What the Lord wants is obedience in the hearts of his people. And I struggled all week with how to apply this and, and in different settings and in different churches and, and the formality that often exists within the context of religion. Listen, um, we should not confuse religion with getting caught up in traditionalism. These are very different things. Tradition is a, is a very good thing when it's practiced and when it's made alive in the faith that it stirs in the hearts of people. But traditionalism is when we get caught up and we begin to value our tradition and our religion to the neglect of the Christ to whom we are proclaiming and preaching about. And what happens in churches too often is that we get caught up in, in the practices and the rituals and the things and the rhythms that we're used to doing to the neglect that we grow in our infatuation and in our love and in our affections towards God and His work through Christ and being used by the Spirit of God. It looks like a group of people that is stated by the young lady as illustrated in the introduction People that get lost in religion are, are people that just come to church for an hour on Sunday and then go home today and, and continue to live like they had never been and don't act any different and speak different and talk different. Don't ever wear their faith on their sleeves so that people can see it and, and know it, but rather their character and nature is oftentimes more characterized by the things of the world. This was the critique of this one lady 
That the thing that made the gospel unpersuasive to her just on a cursory level at the beginning was just simply not seeing the people of God acting like the people of God should. Almost getting it right, but not quite. The Lord places a great priority on his people being obedient. Here's the thing about the gospel, though. God calls us to be and live in places of obedience, to follow him quickly. But I think one of the things that some of you need to hear this morning is simply this. God, as he calls you to obedience, he's not waiting on you to trip up. He's not waiting in a posture for you to mess up so he can slap your hand or spank your rear end of, in some sort. That's, that's not what God is, is doing. God understands that we will fail. In fact, he gave us the law in the Old Testament only for the fact, to prove the fact that we could not live up to its standard, that we needed someone to intercede and we needed someone to intervene on our behalf. And that person, namely being Jesus. But I needed him. And I needed him at 17 years old when I gave my life to Christ. And I need him today at 39 years old standing in this pulpit. The same Jesus that I needed as a teenager is the same Jesus that I need right now in this moment. Amen. And he's the same one you need as well. You see, Saul got caught up in the trap of doing things for the Lord. And in the process, somehow he missed the Lord entirely. And my fear for us and my prayer for our church moving forward in the decades to come is that we would not miss doing things for the Lord and miss the Lord in the process. That we would not almost be obedient and like Saul, but rather we would be fully obedient and pursuing that and, and yearning for that and longing for that and resting in that. And resting in the truth ultimately that when we fail, which we will, it's the reason why we sang that song earlier, He Will Hold Me Fast. Because the truth of the gospel is this, it's not about how hard and how firm your grip is on the Lord, but the truth of the gospel is that His grip is firmly on you. And He today is not and will not let go of you. Amen. And so we rest in that truth today. And we're propelled by that truth to go because of that and to walk in obedience and to be faithful because he is the one that holds us fast. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We are grateful for men like Saul in strange and, and weird ways. Father, namely just so we can learn what not to do at times. Father, we know that you want our whole heart, not just pieces of it, not just parts of it, but you want our whole heart, our whole being. You want every aspect of our life. And Father, we're thankful that in your goodness and, and kindness, you give us the ability to, to repent of our sins, to rightly see us according to your word and according to your scriptures. And so Father, we pray now that we would obey rather than seeking to sacrifice. And Father, that you would change our hearts, that you would change our minds so that we could look more like you in the weeks to come. So Father, would you help us with your spirit? Help us be obedient. Help us walk in your goodness and mercy because you say it will follow us all the days of our lives. 
And for we pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name.